Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if this class, Paul, that we could, uh, one of the things that we are actually doing just by nature because of the text are bridging, connecting the, the work you've done specifically around Romans 7 with the work that Campbell's done specifically around Romans 1 through 3 to say this is a rhetorical style. This is a, a falsehood, and this is perennial. And the, the conditional gospel and the death drive thesis of chapter 7 that's perennial is to just recognize that the, what we do as human beings is we make a deal with death in Romans 7. That's right. But also, we assume that we have to make a deal with God. That's right. And that's, that's Romans one through three, and they're also interchangeable in some ways. That's that's well said. That's well said. I mean, because what you're describing right there is that there's always a contract. Either God has to draw up a deal, or we have to draw up a deal, right? Be and that's because of our orientation, our misorientation to the law, which Paul has talked about at Infinitum. You know, that's just like what Paul does. Paul acts it. You know, he's drawing that out to say this is how we always orient ourselves to the law instead of just. In other words, like I keep hearing like. This is crazy, but I I actually come up against this all the time, even in my own heart. It's like I'm looking for reasons to give myself that God doesn't love me or that I have to do something, right? So it's a psychological thing too, right? It's like there, you know, well, it's either on the one side, it's because I'm a sinner, like, well, God couldn't, you know. In other words, we're always almost trying to get ourselves out of the deal or something, but it seems like so forceful what paul's doing he's saying there's no get i mean and i don't want to take this too far here but it's almost like there's you know this is an unconditional gift god it's a fact it's an accomplished fact so you you know uh it is what it is you can't um opt out of this one because it would be like opting out of existence or something you can't does that make is that too strong paul i think that is the choice that that yeah. we either opt in or out of existence that's it. That's it. And and the way that we would opt out of existence is to make it a contract, some sort of yeah. fiction, some sort of abstraction, some sort of contract, you know, some legal terms that are just up in the ether over here somewhere floating around. Whereas like, no, the gospel is about this lived relationship where you're inhabiting the love of God in and through the church and you're loving the poor and you're doing your, you know, Christ is living inside of you. It doesn't have anything to do. I think that Brian just put it right, you know, really well, you know, to say that either God's making a deal with us or we're making a deal with God. But it always does seem to be that sort of, but that is precisely what you have taught is the law. I think that's it. And this is my understanding of sin. And I know when you first hear that, that sounds too big. How can everything reduce down to that? Advance, that is the thing that Lacan and Zizek do for us. I think it's there in Romans 7, but their reading of Romans 7, this is what they believe. In other words, these atheistic, Marxist, materialist philosophers, this is what they're saying about the human psyche, is that it does reduce down to this dialectic 
between the superego, which is, the, you know, we could call that any number of things, the symbolic, the law, maybe just, you know, I think at one level, it's just language, and it's our entry into language. And then the dialectic occurs with the ego, superego, ego, and it is that agonistic struggle over, you know, if you in Freudian terms, the superego, you cathect the father image. But of course, you've cathected the father image in terms of the law. So there ain't no father. Use your own father. In other words, that's what the Oedipus complex is, that I would be my own father. I would be the originator of myself. Uh, and so I think once you get that, then you can begin to understand how everything, and I think this is the vision that Paul has. And so if we can capture what he is picturing as the human predicament, I think that's step one. I think Campbell's got it. His approach obviously isn't my approach, but I think, interestingly, I think his work is confirmation or a, certainly a parallel to what I've done. And that's why I, I, I'm hoping we could do the two together. I mean, we know that the law it basically boils down to let's make a deal. <laughs> right? I mean, that's just that's just how, how it is. And like Brian said, it's we would play that, we would think that God's playing that game, that we're playing that game. But the good news, like the actual proclamation seems to be you know, and by the way, this is how Israel, you know, this is always the temptation, right? So even from the very beginning, it's not that God was saying to Abraham, let's make a deal. He was saying, you know, he That's was promising and all this other stuff, right? And so the law didn't come until later, right? So that's what Paul's tracing too, that even in the beginnings of Israel, clear back to Abel or whatever, you know, and Adam, it's like, God's never been in the let's make a deal business. God has been in the you know, in the promising business, the covenant, you know, business where it's not a legal, this is Paul's whole thing about the legal code. It's a, just a dead letter. It's a violent written, you know, it, it's a, uh, it's never what this, this thing's been about, but the whole temptation, whether you want to think of it in terms of justification or the food laws or the circumcision or whatever, there's always the law, the, just the pure kindness and mercy and goodness and love of God being you know sort of um exchanged for some sort of deal so we're in bondage and we need deliverance you're describing two categories uh, lacan and zizak super ego which has different names and what was the alternative set of so ideas? so when freud discovers the death drive I, don't get nervous jeff we're not i won't do the psychoanalytic it's, stuff I, I i wrote on psychoanalysis for my oh, okay so i'm on board i, I always <laughs> think people when i start talking no, no. this way people are groaning inside that, more more Paul. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so freud discovers the death drive in other words he he's seeing people in the clinic and he really, I mean, he's really a pioneer in many senses. And by the way, I'm not Freudian. I'm just using Freud as an illustration of this. Why are people, these people that are coming to see him, self-destructive? I mean, that's the question. Why, why are people sick? And so that's Jim when he, he, pro, he poses 
the tripartite self. And he calls this, it is the conscience, you know, the, the, but by conscience, I'm afraid we get the wrong image. We picture our conscience as given by God. Oh, when my conscience, let, you know, Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience be your guide. And Freud sees through that and says, no, this is, uh, this is not good. This is evil. I think that's a huge step. That is that thing in our head, that thing that's punishing us, that thing that, you know, we're self, we're masochistic, or we're sadistic, we're violent. That's what Freud is hitting upon. So he calls it the superego. And what he's done, he's recognized there's a split in the ego. The ego is just the I, you know, the person. And he's split between this father figure, this he's cathected this kind of command voice into his head. But who's he commanding? Well, the ego. In other words, there's this, this antagonism. That voice, you know, uh, the, the superego, the father figure, authority figure, law figure, Lacan is going to, to broaden that out. And Lacan says, I'm never doing anything but working within Freud. And, I, and, and when you read Freud or Lacan carefully, you realize he's, tr he's right. But what he is doing that is quite radical with Freud... Freud thought he was working with biology. In other words, he, he wanted to be a scientist. Lacan takes all the Freudian stuff and puts it in a different register, in a linguistic register. So what Freud saw as biology, Lacan sees as language. And that's why he changes the name of the superego to the symbolic. And he's actually reading, he's reading Freud, he's reading Freud's footnotes as he's working this out. I think Lacan sees something in Freud that Freud himself didn't see. And that is that the entry into the symbolic order is the point, first of all, that there, that gives rise to the superego, ego split. The superego can be, uh, it's either superego or it's symbolic, the symbolic order. But all that symbolic is, is language. I mean, that's just, <laughs> but think a minute, that's what we would do with language. We take language and we reify it. We imagine that language per se gives us the truth. And this is where there's, I think there's a huge confusion in theology, in especially surrounding Anselm of Canterbury. Because Anselm is a wonderful demonstration that he's going to fuse language, human words, and the logos, Jesus. What Jesus does for us, Anselm just says, yeah, that's what language does for us. That, that literally, I, you just everything begins to fall into place here. That is that, that Anselm says we go, you know, the place of language is actually a place that is silent because that's the place from which words arise. Oh, that's, man, he's already recognizing. I mean, he's not recognizing. He, he's repeating the error that Kant will see as there in Descartes. 
I think, therefore I am, and, and Kant comes along and says, wait a minute, you got two eyes there. You got the thinking thing and you got the thought, and those two things don't hold together. But An Anselm doesn't see that. I think a lot of, uh, you know, scholastic, I think scholasticism unfolds from Anselm. But of course, Descartes is just a confirmation of what we have in Anselm. And so the Cartesian sense of self, kind of the modern sense of self, is one that we live with. So the so so when we say superego, I think that's just what Paul means by the law. He's he's going to use the word in in a lot of different ways. You know, is it the Jewish law? Well, yeah, usually, but it's also the this other law, and ultimately, it's the law of sin and death. I've always put a lot of emphasis on Romans 3.21, and I'm still thinking that it's significant because in 19 and 20, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. There's the conventional wisdom, but it's also naming the, the truth of that law is law, whether it's the law that the Gentile reads into the heavens right, right. or the law that has been right, given right. and is followed either way i think this is the this is the way i see is the the point of romans one through three is that it, paul is trying to silence or maybe draw together the collective human universal human experience of you know that's really summed yes, up well yes. in romans seven Yes, that's good, Brian. And and almost you almost don't need the false teacher. I think right. you do, but you almost don't need the false teacher to have said what you just said. I, yeah. I, I let me repeat what you just said. What Paul is doing in chapter three is working within an understanding that people have. He doesn't agree with his understanding. In this instance, you know, Campbell is saying, this is the false teacher, but Paul is picking up the logic of the false teacher, and he's deconstructing his argument on the basis of the belief. But actually, as you're saying, well, and I think we can just presume, oh, it's not just the false teacher. Probably the Roman Christians have a very similar view about the law. And he's saying, wait a minute. With this understanding, everybody is silenced. Everybody is condemned. But, Paul, you just said that, that that's because that orientation to the law that we have is already baked in. You it's just there. Thing. It's, it's uh, yeah, I, uh, this, part, this part of what I'm saying may be a little disturbing to you. Well, I think we should probably call uh, Douglas Campbell right now and tell him to figure it out. <laughs> We figured out who the false teacher is. Yeah. It's the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and right. it is universal. And Paul right. universalizes it. In other words, he, this is part of what he's doing there. And Campbell says this. You know, he's taking the... Well, I probably should back up and go through the steps with you. But he's taking, okay, chapter 2 is a kind of universalization of what he's done in one. He said, okay, there, this applies here. 
And then in two, Paul is getting especially perverse because he's taking the parameters of this argument and he's saying, well, let's let's spread this out and apply it everywhere. And he's going to make the whole thing crash and burn. And three, he clenches the argument. The argument will not hold. In other words, if this is what you believe, this is where you end up. All in one to three. Yeah. I mean, and, and Paul, you've done this analysis before of the lie, the original lie in Genesis 3. And how that sort of plays into all this, right? Because in other words, it's the same lie. The same lie that the false teacher keeps raising is a very similar sort of uh, dialectic or whatever that the that the serpent is raising uh, with the knowledge of the good of good and evil, as opposed to just direct knowledge of the life of Christ, you know, of Christ, the love of God, whatever. Right? That there's this alternative to that. That's there it. That's it to that to that direct participation in the life of god there that you know there's an alternative that, that's a real valid alternative that has like an actually existing being and all that so i can see paul knowing you know the scriptures like he does and saying we're all, this is the reason why they wrote that myth in genesis 3 is because it perfectly encapsulates the the what's always the human temptation that is, it's just always to turn from the tree of life, from Christ, to some sort of, you can call by a million different names, you know, a deal, something, of, you know, some sort of knowledge, gnosis, you know, some sort of law. Paul seems to be picking up on that. And I thought, Paul, you even did something a long time ago with your work on Romans, even looking at, like, the linguistics between some of what Paul, I could be misremembering that, of, um, well, of usage of Genesis 3. Uh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's their incentive. Paul is Paul is continually referencing Genesis three throughout Romans. I mean, that, that's step one, I think, to getting what he's doing. Seven is obviously referencing Genesis three. Five, he names it. He says this, you know, first Adam, second Adam. But throughout, that's in in the background. Okay, I might be changing the subject, but I, I want to get this out. And if it's too early, that's fine. I picture the center of gravity of Paul's image of sin is, is being the lie or deception. With that thought, I want to move it to a question. Does that deception or does that lie have its own agency? Is it self-generating? Or does it derive energy or animus from our permission or our capacities or our incapacities? What's the linkage? You're asking all the right questions, and those are the deep questions. Let me put it in a, in a slightly different language here. And that is, what are we saying when we say a deception? Well, life is in the law. Life is in language. Life is in human thought. Life is in, you know, dot, dot, dot. In other words, the human project. The, and even the word life, you understand, is partly problematic. Because we may not recognize we're talking about. It may be being. It may be stat. In other words, what is this thing we're, we're referring to as life? But it, in some way, as in Genesis, that we would establish ourselves through the symbolic order, through language. So, Jim, your question, you know, how is human will functioning around that? I do deal with this in my book. I raise the very question 
that you're raising. Because I think if I were to attack my own theory, part of the part of the issue is we are enculturated into this understanding. I I do think that's the case. In other words, this is just kind of the passage that we all go through in language acquisition in the development of human will. I do think that there is agency. And even Zizek and Lacan are going to talk about, in other words, they're going to talk about this tripartite self, but they're also discussing a kind of agency that is not captured in that tripartite self. And I think that's true. I think there is a, a, a human agency that we can't completely account for. And this is where, you know, this is the long discussion in the history of theology is the issue of determinism and free will. You know, even our in our discussion of conditionalism and unconditional. You know, when we say unconditional, I don't think human agency is left out of the equation. I never mean to say that. Right. But it's... There is a synergism. You know, this is your guy, Matt, DBH, David Bentley Hart, does a wonderful job in talking about, you know, we may think of the fall simply in historic terms, but his point is, no, that the fall is this temporal event that in some way we are all participants in, and we all experience. In other words, he takes the Genesis story calling it a myth but by what he means by that yeah it's that event that we all participate in so I, I think there is agency there is free will but it's but there is also over and against that there is this sense in which we are all captive and i want to say both things simultaneously and i can't necessarily sort that out you know to say first of all who we are is synergistic with participation in God, right? I mean, we're never fully human apart from that participation. And and that participation, you know, there is no such thing as, as a completely being cut off from that participation. But of course, in Christ, we're brought into uh, a fullness. In him, we have our Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Right. Well, I was just going to say, like, I think it, it kind of gets even back to the very first question you asked about, um, you know, can we be convinced by it? Because I, I want to very much be convinced. Like I 100% want to, and I actually am totally good to be convinced. Like I'm ready. Just, okay. but it's like, right. the problem for me, I think is when I think about my friends who are in more conservative kinds of contexts, pitching it, it's like the gospel because it's too good to be true, right? And the the idea that it's like, well, no, you're actually being a pervert because you want to love the law, right? You want to somehow say this right. thing is this thing that is death is actually good, right. you know, like that. That's the the difficulty of it, and then it it predisposes. I think it predisposes us to say, well, no, I love the law; it's good. And so how, so it just seems like Campbell's just wish, wishful thinking, you know, or, or, or any of us who are saying, well, no, surely, you know, like, this is why I loved Campbell's breakdown of justification theory was I thought, oh my goodness, I, this like makes it 
so clear all of the assumptions that have to be in place. And every single friend that I've had who've left the faith, faith, it was for one of these reasons. Like it was mm -hmm. for like, you know, like, oh, the universal, it's a universal problem for the, you know, the first phase and the rigorous phase. And then it's a particular solution for the generous phase. It's like, well, yeah, I have friends who've left the faith because that didn't make any sense to them. And it, how could God be a good God and allow that to happen? So I, I think for me, it's like, how do we, if, if, the, if what's on offer is reality, right, is like moving into true actual existence, and what, at least for me, what, what I was raised with was more of the illusion. Like it was like a Christian version of the illusion, right? That, that I, I mean, this is what I loved about, I haven't read your whole book yet, Paul, but like what you're saying, even in the way that like Zizek gets it right, but within the illusion, he, he gets the whole illusion ac accurately described and, and, and Freud and Lacan, but what he's missing is that there is an outside to it. Like that, that the, that's the out, outcome the, he, he stops at hysteria, but that there's actually something on the other side that comes about because of the work of Christ. Um, that, that to me, is sounds like, it's like, shouldn't we all be super into that? That's what we're looking for, but it just collapses so quickly back into, I mean, even honestly, even some of the, like, it's conditional on our side, even some of that language threatens, threatens the whole piece um like you know i don't know like i've been listening to this guy andrew farley he's like a preacher in kansas or something anyways it's not he doesn't know i don't think he knows psychoanalysis or anything like that but um but he his slogan is jesus plus nothing which sounds amazing until you dig into it a little bit more and it sounds like it's actually jesus plus us needing to have faith sufficient to, like it, it ends up just collapsing again <laughs> Uh -huh. So that's, 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 I guess, where I'm coming from when I'm approaching it. It's like, I am so ready. I want this to be true, which means I kind of probably just live as if it is, but like, it's the, the getting over the hump of it and being able to say, okay, well, it, it, if Paul is really just saying, this is what we all, you all think, because that's just part of being caught by the lie. And I'm here to bring a real gospel to you. Um, then let's, let's find it. Let's get it. All right, all right. I'm glad to hear that, Jeff. I'm Paul, always I, Paul. Can I just say real quick? Like, I think that he kind of hit on something really important here that you had already said. That is, is that in an ironic way, Jesus plus nothing is always part of the false gospel. In other words, that's a really nice way to put it. That coupling God with the nothing, Jesus plus <laughs> nothing, is like a really good. Is like a really good way to talk about and what paul said earlier that makes that make sense is is that this letter is being written to the roman church it's to the church in rome so in other words like this lie you know it's pervasive like someone else was saying it's perennial it's pervasive it's it's even christians are caught up in the you know are going to be always tempted like adam by that sort of conditional side you know it's like you know brian's more right than he knows it's like really that in the scriptures the devil really is the one who introduces the conditional you know sort of to the to the human race right like he that there's well you know god you know um knows that you'll become like him but yeah but saint paul's gospel is whole the whole gospel is about theosis it's that god does want us to be like him you know but the devil introduces or the serpent or whatever introduces like this nothing 
this uh, conditional or this law or this something that's just not true. It's a lie. Um, and that we're all, like Paul just said earlier, we're t we've been taken captive by it. And every time our superego or whatever you want to call it tries to tell you that God doesn't love you for whatever reason, it, you're caught into that. You're, you're, you've been caught up into the, the problem of death. You guys are, uh, you're a super advanced group, though. So, uh, let me let me get a little bit pedantic then and say things you've already, you all already know. And that is that what ultimately we've said tonight, let's, you know, you go through the steps of justification. By, by the way, we should probably start with saying, hey, the Protestant Reformation, this is what I appreciate about, about Alvin Kimball. You know, the wonderful thing about the Protestant Reformation, they discovered or re-articulated or were attempting to re-articulate unconditional salvation. That was what I think Luther wanted. I think that's what, you know, maybe even Calvin's coming closer, strangely enough. But, of course, Campbell's point is, he you know, he just goes through Luther and says, you know, you can actually find that in Luther. You can find places where Luther is clearly defending, you know, no questions asked, unconditional, the unconditional good news of the gospel. The problem is then you can also go to Luther and find exactly the opposite. And Campbell's point is he's fusing two things, and justification theory fuses two things. I think this is kind of the gospel that probably most of us have received. Maybe we think we could kind of worm our way out of parts of this because we may not quite be aware of what we've done. I think this is the beauty that Campbell is laying this out so clearly. But, you know, you just go through. First of all, notice that one to four, if you're going to do justification theory, this is the place. In other words, this is the citadel of justification theory. And, and with that in mind, we could understand why many people are going to resent what Campbell is doing, but maybe just resent our conversation tonight. Under this understanding, the law is taking an, it, it's being manipulated in an interesting way. In other words, you could, even for somebody in justification theory, we can talk about that it's not by law, but it's by faith. You know, in other words, we can we can come up with all these phrases, and and we can almost yeah, okay, but of course, what is meant is Christ died to meet the requirements of the law. In other words, the law is still playing a foundational role in, I think, in divine satisfaction and in penal substitution, and we've already then once we've said that. We've already said retributive justice. I, I would think that should make our skin crawl because this is the terrible thing that I'm afraid we have believed about God in much of Christianity is that God has, he resembles an oppressive, punishing, sadistic, I'll, I'll go further, evil. In other words, the law that we've equated with God in retributive justice is nothing short of evil itself. Blasphemy. I mean, that's it's you're going to get in trouble if you say that in certain churches. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, I I don't think in order it's too I much. Mean, 
Saint Isaac says that. Saint Isaac talks about it in those terms of blasphemy. Whenever he talks about, he says to to talk about God's, you know, sort of uh, justice as retributive is blasphemy. He says because it has to be remedial. It has to be to you know unless you know you have to exchange for a different God, right? Almost for Saint Isaac that. What he's saying is, is now that God is love, God is good. He's he's remedial. He's a healer, um, and it's blasphemy to say that his that he's a retributive, um, penal sort of another punitive like sort of punisher. And I think that Saint Isaac was seeing it in a different register because he understood that that is precisely uh, a conflation with the law. That's everybody can see well, the psychoanalytic stuff is real handy here because now we understand. Oh, just a minute. That thing that we thought was good, I mean, that's this is actually the human psyche. You know, we thought our, we could let our conscience be our guide. Freud calls it moral masochism. Mm. In other words, we take this thing in our head and we destroy ourselves. Mm. I, I always think Freud is, I, you know, so much of it I don't buy, but so much of it is just a beautiful illustration of Paul's picture of the law. The other thing that is going along with this that is almost sounds contradictory to what we've just said is with this kind of dark picture of retributive justice, then we almost we have to have a very high view of the human capacity to apprehend who God is, that God is just, and that uh, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, and we have to have a understanding of the law and even as i say that you know what that means is a little unclear and campbell begins to break this down you know what wait a minute what law you mean like something on the order of the ten commandments oh would that include uh sabbath keeping would that include the moral you know the sexual mores that are attached to judaism you know so when, when he begins to break it down, you think, oh, well, something a little more vague, you know. So he say, okay, well, you mean that there's kind of two systems of justice. There is the Old Testament law system of justice. And remember, this is the system, and this is there in, in chapters 1 to 3, that God is going to judge us by at the judgment. And yet we're a little bit iffy on, you know, we got the hard and fast Jewish law, but this law written on the heart, what is that exactly? So his point is you've got two different systems that maybe we would make it easier for the natural, you know, revelation sort of people, And but he, he, he begins to show the, the contradictions of that. But the point is we have, we, we are really get, have a very high view of human understanding comprehension and actually we're almost describing a philosophical capacity to understand who god is you know i don't know if any of you all have spent much time in other cultures i never met anybody in japan that had anything of you like that at all and in fact most of the people i met were kind of like paul as a pharisee they had no problem with the law they never had, and in Japanese, this becomes problematic because sin actually means crime. So if you mm -hmm. ask a Japanese, are you a sinner? I say, of course not. No, I don't even know any sinners. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not a criminal. So, uh, so you have to have that. 
And then, you know, what we mean by total depravity, and even Calvin. In other words, Calvin needs both things. Total depravity is you have this high capacity, or in Augustinian terms, but then a very uh, a total incapacity that, you know, is, is at some level contradictory. This incapacity, you know, we then we break it down into the will or uh, something else. So that that's the basic premise of justification theory. Fills every nook and cranny within you and just makes you operate like a mannequin. <laughs> justification theory, very powerful, powerful motivator, you know? And, yeah, and it's kind of the, as Jim was describing with the Romans Road thing, I mean, this is the way we drive people into Christianity. We just the imagine Romans dark alley. Yeah, you got to get them in the alley and beat them. <laughs> you got to make them feel real depressed. They got to feel bad about themselves. They got to know they're a sinner because we have this understanding through justification theory that this is what Christ has done for us. In other words, we were incapable. Our incapacity is not in our epistemology or our theology, our incapacity is the singular incapacity in regard to the law. And it's Christ the, did that. It's the it's the thing that's that's like when I think about because and I and I partly I, I have a lot of conservative friends who are in the same sort of church network as me. Um, but the the thing I find so frustrating is that that view, the view that says the justification theory view, but even maybe a little bit darker, you know, the one that says I'm passionate about the wrath of God, which I've literally had someone, multiple people say to me, I'm like, what does that mean? But yeah. the, the, the thing I don't understand is, is that is seen as the, at least in this little circle, the intellectually more robust. It's, it's the more robust view. It's the one that takes scripture seriously. And it's, you know, it's the ones like us who are the hippies looking for, you know, Freud to fill in the blanks for us, or like, that's, that's what I, I find so frustrating. And that's why I, I love the idea that Douglas Campbell's got a 1000 pages of like, you know, deep exegesis and, you know, rhetorical analysis that he's doing. Uh, I just want, I wish that there was a way to kind of elevate that, you know, like, and I don't know why. I mean, I guess it's because a view that sees the wrath of God as a necessity, and retributive justice as a necessity, feels like it's one that's wrestling with reality more kind of directly than a view that is just saying, no, the love of God is unconditional and God's attempting to overcome the world. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I've heard it said every judgment is also a confession. As I'm doing in this, cl this class, I certainly feel implicated. You know, oh, I've been guilty of so much because this is what we've all been taught, you know. you got to really believe some evil things. you got to really swallow hard. Yeah. I think when I, actually, I always think when I was a young Christian, I was much more sophisticated about God. And then, unfortunately, I went to Bible college and seminary, and I learned to believe all those evil things about God. I don't think I, as a young, you know, 13, 14. I picked up the New Testament. I arrived at pacifism. I understood God was a God of love. I, you know, and then it took training. You know, I needed to be indoctrinated uh, into this other, more sophisticated 
understand. Jeff, and you probably are ahead of us. If you have you read much of, uh, have you been reading much in Campbell? Uh, yeah, I think I'm chapter three, maybe. But okay, all right, four. and that's probably why you're more amenable. <laughs> probably yeah. uh, because reading him, he is just a tour de force. You know, just his boy. He just bowls you over. I know it's kind of a mean thing to say to people. Well, have you read him? <laughs> but I'm afraid he's much easier to dismiss because I, I did it. I mean, it, it, the theory just sounds, you know, so much. But let me go through the theory. And that is that in one to three, you know, this is where the frame of retributive justice, one eighteen to 32, he's going to say this is the in the voice of the false teacher. And in there, then, he runs down the pagan capacity whatever this is you know however you, there, there would be alternative ways you know nt right you know if i were not doing campbell i suppose right argument that you know he may be and talking about saved pagan gentiles talking about christians it doesn't quite make sense but okay if you're gonna throw it out but what he seems to be saying, and 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 of course, once we get that what Campbell, uh, what Paul is doing, according to Campbell, he's not he's just giving voice to the implications of a system, a law based system, that the judgment is going to be based on the law, and in this understanding, then there have to be these pagans. You know, first of all, point one, them dirty pagans. Look how despicable they are, one eighteen to thirty-two. Paul's going to take that and say, "Well, wait a minute. You're saying these dirty pagans, and of course, actually, the false teacher may be talking about the Roman Christians uh, because they're not circumcised. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that through natural revelation, then they are culpable, and they're degenerative, and they they failed." And they are uh, completely culpable to God's judgment. And then in two one eight to one eight, Paul is he's taking this argument and working within it. He's taking the logic. The implication then for Jews and Gentiles is that if if we're doing a law based system, then it's universal. Everybody's equal. Uh, then two nine to twenty one nine demonstrates, and this is where Paul says, well, if in this understanding, you know, it may be that the authentic Jews in the sight of God are actually the pagans who keep the law. In other words, this false teacher is saying, the Jews are Jewish, and, and by Jews, he's, we're, we're never talking about Judaism in here, by the way. I think this is a saving grace of what Campbell is doing. I think Paul comes out anti-Semitic in justification theory. I think Paul comes out anti-Semitic in a lot in, in a lot of the history of Christianity. I don't think Paul was an anti-Semite. <laughs> I don't think he had a low view of Judaism at all. But in this argument, it might be made to seem that he's saying that. But that's not, you know, the Jews who have, they rob temples and you know in 222 to 23 
what in the world is that about? Well, you know, Campbell's point, he points to Josephus. Well, this is an actual historical incident that happened in Rome, that some Jewish swindlers seduced a woman, got her to give them a bunch of money for the temple, and then ran off the money. Paul's not talking about all Jews, but in the argument of the false teacher, in other words, under this law-based thing, the Jews should always come out ahead. That just being Jewish, just having the law is a benefit. Paul's not saying, oh, all these dirty, you know, he's not turning. He's just saying, well, look, at, wait a minute. Here's some Jews that didn't seem to benefit. And then he says, well, by your own system, you know, he's hoisted him on his own petard, according to Campbell. Righteous pagans are the true Jews. And unrighteous Jews will be judged by righteous pagans. So we're talking about the judgment and, you know, in the judgment. And I think we, we all understand that, you know, that, that there are clear places in here that Paul doesn't believe, first of all, that the judgment is on the basis of works or on the basis of law. Could we attribute that belief to the Apostle Paul? Whatever you believe about Romans 1 to 3. And even in Romans, you know, in that section, he's, you know, he says, he points directly and says, well, no one is righteous by the law. We're only declared righteous through faith. So if anybody imagines that even for a short moment that Paul bought into the law-based gospel, here he's just, even in that section, he's, he's refuted it. But really, as you pointed out, Brian, it's in 3, 1 to 20, where he's wrapping up this argument, but he's still working within the system, that the logic of this system, by the logic of this system, a retributive justice system in which we understand God through the law, that any leniency is a form of a, a libertine. You know, they've accused Paul of being a libertine because he's a Christian. But of course, these are, you know, the false teacher's a Christian too. So, and he's willing, apparently, to offer leniency in some instances. But Paul is saying, well, by your own system, there can be no leniency, even in Christ. You know, this is his uh, 3.8. Why not say, as we are slanderously reported in some claim, let us do evil that good may come? That's Paul's formula, by the way, for uh, how the... Uh, the perversity, the underside of the law. He's going to say the same thing, I think, four times in different language. There's actually a kind of compelling logic in the formula. If God, get, I'm saying perverse logic, don't get me wrong here, the logic of the devil, that shall we sin that grace may abound? Well, yeah, you know, that would prove God's grace even more firmly. But I think what Paul is illustrating, and this is Zizek, this is kind of the underside of the law. So in chapter 7, we're dealing, you know, there's kind of two sides of the law. There's the law keeper, and then there's the law breaker, but the law breaker is actually also concerned about the figure behind the law. I always think Genesis is just beautifully illustrates this. In the serpent's picture, that God has, has lied to Adam and Eve. And he's saying, if you if you 
want to penetrate to the true power of God, break the law. That is actually a kind of perverse logic, that the underside of the law is this transgressive attitude. You're still captured. You know, think of every guy that's robbed a bank or all the people in prison. You think they they may have a problem with the law? Well, yeah, it's just a different kind of problem. But they're caught up in the law. They're defined by the law in the same way that a legalist is. In other words, their whole orientation is is grounded in this. That is a, a quick summary. I don't think four enters into this so much. I think even the traditional reading of four, I don't think we have to do, because it's just obvious in chapter four. Yeah, Paul's giving voice, but it's obvious where, where he's, he's doing that in, in four. Uh, and so Paul's saying to this teacher, you're condemned by your own system. So that, in short, is, is Campbell's argument. And Campbell concludes, by this point in Romans, it is apparent that the teacher's gospel is incoherent. Its opening, by definition of the problem facing all pagans, leads to a set of contradictions in relations to its continuation. Its purported solution in terms of circumcision and law observance that ultimately overrule and undermine it. That's Campbell's point about the argument. And that what Paul is doing, he's using the argument throughout to defeat the argument. Properly understood, this gospel, understood in its own terms, saves no one, not even its proclaimer. Now, of course, the travesty is that justification theory, if Campbell is right, is fusing the false teacher with Paul. And so we get a kind of amalgam of the two. It's not legalism that we get in justification theory, but it's still the false teacher's foundation of everything on the law. It's still this kind of high view of human knowledge, but it's a very strange view of who God is. You know, really, God is still the God of, of retributive justice. And it's a very strange view of conversion and atonement. And Brian, this is your point. Paul does talk about, in, you know, in this section, about atonement. I think it's a very flat reading of the atonement. It's not wrong. It's not necessarily untrue. But I think Paul is going to take them from that and show them his gospel. Because in their gospel, they see the problem. The Romans, in this instance, the, the Roman Christians may have a very law-based understanding. Oh, that Christ has died to pay for our transgressions. In other words, they kind of are seeing Christ in terms of taking the place of the temple sacrifices which I would imagine even the false teacher believes that. So that's the, you know, it, the, the travesty, the terrible thing is we get the worst part of the teacher's false teaching veiled, you know, it's fused with Paul's teaching. And then we imagine, and that's the danger in this, we imagine we can fit the false teacher and Paul together, and we call that justification theory. Yeah, and call it biblical. And call it biblical. My question, which is not a nice question, could we equate justification theory with something like what Paul refers to in Galatians 
as no gospel at all, but the accursed gospel. But I won't say that. I, I, there are differences. I don't mean to just fuse them together. But in as much as they all are law-based, justification theory, the false teacher, I think they've missed the, the heart of the gospel. And I think the, uh, the stark difference comes out, and I'm still, my attention is still around 321. I've always seen that as a decisive turn in the text. Yes, it is. It it is. is. I'm not sure how it fits into Campbell's argument, but but now, apart from, and in effect he's saying, apart from all of that, apart from all of this I've just said, starting with the wrath of God is revealed, and all of his case building about Jew and Gentile, and um, wherever the law is, wherever your law is to you, it condemns you. But now, it doesn't matter, because apart from all that, I said this in 116 and 17, a righteousness of God is revealed. Mm -hmm. It kind of comes back to something that he's, you know, it's like the closing of the parentheses to me, and I'm like you, I haven't found anything in chapter 4, that latter part of three, it seems to maybe the rhetorical style does pick up in like 27 where he says, what then is boasting, where then is boasting. But still, it, 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 it's starting to introduce back to, okay, this is my gospel, this is the gospel. And he, it's where he introduces, I think in, uh, yeah, it's in 27, the law of faith. Mm-hmm. The bear is uh it's like just like in in 17 and 18 he says the righteousness of god is revealed in my in the gospel and he cuts into 18 with his with the false teacher argument possibly a wrath of god is revealed so it's a very um similar phraseology there but then he comes up at the end and around 321 and latter in that chapter saying it's not the law of works but is the law of faith. And so that picks up with some of the other things from other classes, the rule of faith, the law of faith, as, you know, this is something totally different from any logic, devils, Greek, Jews, whoever's logic it is, this is something different. It's the gospel. That's good, yeah, and it is, a, it is the word nomos. It no. is the word law that's connected to faith, the law of faith. What an interesting phrase, you know. It's also kind of echoed again in uh, Romans 7, the body of death, isn't it? I mean... Yeah, yeah, it's uh, who will rescue me from this body of death. Yeah. Thank God Jesus Christ has rescued me. There, There is only one rescue from yeah. death. I mean, think of the category that we're dealing with here. So I think that's the, you know, that's the big difference here that we we posited in a strange way what justification theory does and what the false teacher does. It really doesn't make the problem we have serious enough. In other words, things were worse than we, <laughs> under justification theory. You got this little problem with the law, but Jesus took care of that. But actually in Paul's gospel, oh no, you're in bondage. You're a slave. You're in the first Adam, where death reigns, and sin reigns in death. Wait a minute. I can't do anything about death. I mean, you know, I uh, that's what chapter 4 is about. He's moving them from a law-based 
kind of, yeah, we kind of have a legal problem to a much more serious problem. And that is this orientation to death is definitive of sin, or it is definitive, that is the orientation to, you know, of faith is resurrection faith in the midst of death. That's the story of Abraham. Sarah's womb was dead. Abraham is as good as dead. And yet he trusted in God to give him Isaac, life, who may be a type of the Messiah, uh, is a type of the Messiah. In other words, this story of Abraham and Isaac is the gospel. Uh, Paul is do he's reading the Bible differently than they've heard it read before. And the strange thing is justification theory still wants to read the Bible in a kind of forward-looking, consecutive, step-by-step. -step. We understand Jesus by what came before Jesus, the law. We understand, you know, in other words, we've got to read it consecutively. Paul is saying we have a retrospective view. In justification theory, Judaism has to be a certain thing. It has to be this thing where they're caught up in the law, you know, those Jews, they're such legalists. And then they realize they can't keep their law, the law. And then they hear about Jesus. In other words, that's what we need the Jews to be in justification theory. And thus we have this definition of Judaism, a perversion. I mean, Jews don't recognize most Christians' picture of what Judaism is because it has nothing to do with Judaism. But I think under our understanding of unconditional, Judaism doesn't, you know, I, I, first of all, I don't think Judaism is clearly definable. I don't, I don't know what it is. And I don't need to know what it is. I, we can say some things about it, but I don't think Jews share any particular, you know, they don't have a singular orientation. They don't have a singular understanding. It's not monolithic. Yeah, I, I even heard recently that there was a um, there's an archaeologist trying to do some um, work, even evangelical or Christian uh, scholar trying to do some work to look into Jewish community in uh, Alexandria, I believe, in Egypt, or maybe it's in uh, Cairo. But there was a, a possibly a temple there wow. that. Wow. that proves the point. I mean, it, it would prove the point that, yeah, Judaism is much more multivarious than we tend to think it is. Well, and the same can be said, I would think, about the early church, too, right? That it's not a monolithic, you know, these things are developing. There's all sorts of different ideas out there about what's the gospel, how, you know, what's going on here. So Paul is, yeah. is trying to lay it out. And I think that what he's laying out, too, that's really important we haven't really talked about is just theosis, right, or deification, or the, the, the point of all this is is being united with God ontologically, you know, spiritually, uh, you know, even physically through the sacraments, whatever, all those different ways. Um, and the, I think that Paul put it so well in the Ephesians class that uh, the dividing wall that Paul, that St. Paul talks about is the law, but we would always construct that wall, like even if it's just me and God in prayer, like I would want to put some sort of wall up to think that I have to climb over it, or he has to climb, you know, but Paul earlier, I would just want to make a little correction, he called DBH my guy, but I'm actually happily married to Margaret, 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, but I do, you know, I love David. But, you know, David is talking about an ontological. He's saying that I think that what Paul is saying, he doesn't use this actual language, I don't think, unless I'm getting this wrong, but that, you know, that we're gods, we're created gods, that we're created for unity with God, that the whole point of creation uh, that, that, you know, creation uh, is salvation, you know, that that we have an ontological, just by our virtue of existing, we participate in the life of God, and that what salvation is, is the continual removing of the different idols, or whatever you want to call them, laws, you know, barriers, between realizing our divinity. That seems to be Paul's, you know, that's what he's driving at, is that, the love of God is what's primary. That's who God is. We would always construct, you know, a violent sort of uh, rebellion against that fact, whether it's with him or in our neighbor or in our national ethnicity or whatever else, our doctrine. So it's really a quite a powerful picture. But in other words, I was just going back to say that, you know, the argument could be made that ontologically, it really is that we are gods, you know, that this is what Jesus says. And that uh, the lie then is to believe that there is some partition that that uh, or there's some alternative sort of way to truly be, but it's actually death. It's Jesus plus nothing. You know, it's like we would literally add the nothing uh, and call it, you know, sin, death, evil, the law, the ego, the super ego, you know, whatever. All these constructs, you know, to put up barriers. And, and it's not that God, you know, is reconciling the world to himself. It's that he has reconciled the world to himself in Christ. And that's the gospel. The gospel is that this is God's gift to humanity. Deification, theosis, eternal life, the, the abolishing of sin, death, evil, any partition that would separate us from the love of God, from unity with God, for an experience of the life of of the church, you know, that is full of the spirit of Christ and the glory of the Father. Like, I think that that's Paul's gospel, is that we can, it's, it's almost too much, you know, and that it's, it's like you can just accept this unconditional gift of God's love and live in it and move in it and have your being, or you can, you know, exchange that truth for a lie or a contract or some sort of deal, you know, or law or code. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.